My name is Ragnar Thomas. I'm a staff writer for the magazine Iceland Review. For the latest issue of the magazine, I profiled the Icelandic singer Briet for a piece called Love Briet on the Power of Music. For the first time in what felt like a long time, I was free. No obligation to stay inside, to put the kids to bed, to return home before some vaguely appointed hour, for it was understood that I was working, and I could not be held accountable for that work coinciding with an evening associated with good spirit and debauchery. It was culture night, and I was a man of culture. But as more and more people piled onto the bus, I found that my excitement was supplanted by a sense of ruefulness. I felt low, put off, disinterested, and the thought arose that none of it meant anything without her. To be clear, this ruefulness was not the product of some unprovoked shift in brain chemistry, but derived from the music in my ears. Briet, a composer chiefly of love songs, had two years ago released an album dedicated to the emotion of love, which was now playing in my headphones. I had never listened to the album in its entirety, and had not realized that all of it was dedicated, or so it seemed, to a single person, a single relationship, a single Dedalian feeling. For 36 minutes and 21 seconds, Briad walks into that subtlest maze of all, and explores all the pathways and passages and high hedges and looming minotaurs, transporting the receptive listener alongside her, whose world then becomes the maze. And so it was that in spite of the fine weather and people and license and anticipation, I felt incomplete, destitute, alone. As the bus wound its way through the labyrinth of the city, I lost myself in that other maze and began to think my way through a recent epiphany, namely that music existed as an antithesis of Stoicism, a philosophy availing itself of the insight that cognition is an integral component of emotion and that by reframing strong and unwanted feelings, a person may succeed in mitigating them. By contrast, music, sitting at the opposite end of this peculiar spectrum, had the power to strengthen subdued but desired emotions. And as I thought all of this, I began to feel that Briet's kind, for lack of a better word, must rank among humanity's greatest benefactors. Moved by this feeling... I resolved to call my soon-to-be wife and persuade her to accept her mother's offer to babysit tonight, because without her, none of it meant anything. I first heard of Briet in early 2017. Her mother, who shared an office with me on Loewevoer, told me that her elder daughter was releasing her debut single. Gearing up for some polite insincerity, I smiled and feigned interest and, to my surprise, discovered that Lila's daughter really could sing, and there was some there there. In the coming months, I interviewed Briette a handful of times, stood in the audience as she performed live, and watched alongside the rest of the country as she won over an increasingly larger audience. This brought awards and record deals and a burgeoning sense of local celebrity, but through it all she seemed warm and personable and never quite so down-to-earth as when she sat cross-legged in her mother's sweat lodge and serenaded all the sweaty, overworked souls that had gathered there in the steaming tent. And then I met her again that morning. Briet was scheduled to soundcheck at Culture Night's big stage, the one sponsored by national broadcaster Ruf, in front of Arnarot Hill at 12.30 p.m. Magnus Johan, 
One of Eisen's most ubiquitous young session players was sitting at his keyboard on the far side of the stage and killing time as the sound crew lugged equipment and electrical cords. Yes, speaking of Briet, Magnus remarked. I don't know, wait, what time is it? He glanced down at his phone. Yes, our sound check began two minutes ago. Fifteen minutes later, Briet arrived with her agent, Sofia, who explained that they had walked almost all the way from the University of Eisen because the streets were closed for the day's celebrations. Briet, relaxed and in good cheer, hugged her fellow musicians and sauntered onto the stage. She began by expressing frustration that a requested side stage had yet to be erected. Turning to Sofia, she asked, Is this the smallest stage in the world? Who's trying to save money here? Last year, Briet booked the Eldborg Auditorium at the Harpa Concert Hall, one of the grandest stages in the country, and put on, according to those who attended, a series of the most spectacular shows in Icelandic music. Rumor has it that she almost made no money from the concert, preferring to recycle any foreseeable profit back into the spectacle itself. As preparations continued and various people buzzed about the stage, Briet, wearing jeans, thick-soled white sneakers, and a colorful sweater reminiscent of Biggie's famous Coogie, leaned momentarily on her right leg, shifted her weight, and looked down at her feet. Her short, bleached curls protruded mane-like from beneath her bespoke black cap, and her left hand dangled, like she was a hippie floating on a cloud of marijuana. It was almost 1.30 p.m. by the time she actually started sound-checking. I had taken my place at the bottom of the hill across from the stage and listened as she performed Fim, a popular single from Quelia Briet. Bystanders, their hair blowing in the cool wind, stopped to look on, some of them mistakenly believing that she was about to perform. I'd like a lot of reverb on the vocals. That's like my input for you, she said to the sound engineer across the stage. I wondered if she had changed. Standing in a backyard on Folkageta, I speculated which of the three doors led to Briet's apartment. I walked back and forth and tried peering through the windows, when the door farthest from the street popped open, and a black-and-white collie came running toward the low picket fence. A man in a green Adidas hoodie followed suit. "'Does Briet live here?' I asked, petting the collie on its head. I knocked on Briet's door, and a voice called for me to come inside. The apartment was bohemian and snug, filled with flowers and knickknacks, and an old blues record was spinning in the background. Ruben Pollock, guitarist of the Grammy-nominated band Kaleo and Briet's boyfriend, stood up from the sofa, introduced himself, and shook my hand. Briet, who was sitting at the kitchen table getting her hair done, got up and gave me a hug, as her three colleagues, a makeup artist, a stylist, and a designer, said hello. I told Briet and Ruben that I had met their neighbor, and that he had nothing but kind words, they said that his name was Antri and that he was, quote, great. I suggested to Briet a quick chat now before sitting down again somewhere more private next week. She replied that that sounded fine, although it would be fun to talk now, since so many of her trusted colleagues were there. That way all of us could talk, she explained. Okay, I'm out of here, Isak, the makeup artist, declared from the sofa as everyone laughed. Whatever suspicion I had harbored that Briet's humility had been compromised by her success was quickly dispelled. It occurred to me that any gap between Briet then and Briet now was not a matter of personal devolution in the direction of haughtiness or entitlement, but rather the formation of two separate identities, disparate but seemingly non-overlapping, the person and the persona. This insight owed not only to Briet's warm demeanor, 
but also to my own experience as a musician, where the disparity of an exaggerated stage persona, whose charms would linger before and after performances while I was still drunk, would serve to underscore the inadequacies of my private self in more quotidian contexts and cause me not a small amount of mental anguish. Briette still visits her mother's sweat lodge in the east as often as possible, and Lila continues to employ the same innocent subterfuge whenever her daughter's there. Addressing the participants, Lila will say, Now I haven't asked my daughter to sing, and then turning to Briette, But suppose you'd indulge us? I ask Briette how her day began, and she redirects the question to Reuben. I prepared some oatmeal and tuna toast and made you eat, he remarks. I have this tendency not to eat before shows, Briette explains, suggesting somehow the inequitable demands of women artists in music. Which never fails to inspire this feeling of responsibility within Reuben. He wouldn't let me leave the house without eating. The preparations for tonight's big show have proved less than ideal. Ruve requested that Briette close the evening by putting on a similar show as the one in Harpa, and Briette agreed. But then that venerable institution's organizers proceeded to veto all of her ideas. She had suggested, for example, beginning her performance with a theatrical entrance from the top of Arnarot, walking down through the throng of people while singing. But that, the organizers replied, though not in so many words, was too much of a hassle. They weren't trying to find any solutions, Briette explains while sipping her tea, so I've been a little annoyed going into it. When I showed up today and they hadn't erected the side stage, I was frustrated. I just struggle when I'm asked to do something and then no one's prepared to do the work. Has anything changed since the start of your career? No, I wouldn't say so, Briette remarks. The crowd's gotten bigger and there are more people around me. I have more hands, more minds, more eyes, which is priceless. There's only so much you can do alone. But I sort of know more what I want and where I'm going. The path is always becoming clearer. I could do new things, bigger things. So you have a clear vision and the courage to pursue that vision. Well, Briad pauses before saying rather emphatically, No, I've always had a clear vision and the courage to follow through. But what's changed is that people have begun to take me seriously. She chuckles. Yes, perhaps you do know what you're doing, Briad remarks, imitating the once skeptical members of her industry. You're still sober? Yes, not a sip of alcohol to this day. Her mother's sobriety has probably played a part, although Briette clarifies that alcohol has never really appealed to her. All that interests me is that which serves to broaden my horizons, and I don't think there are many things that can do that beside oneself. But I don't know, I'm not saying never either, just that other things offer so much, like going to sweat ceremonies and being on stage. That's probably my way of getting high. We talk music briefly before segueing into writing. At last year's Eisen Music Awards, Briette was chosen Best Lyricist. In a somewhat controversial moment, while accepting the award, she turned to the camera, put up a middle finger, and declared, That's for everyone who asks me, who writes your lyrics? Do you read a lot? My friend does, and she offers plenty of recommendations. I just read Where the Crawdads Sing. It's so good, every word is just perfect and I'm currently reading Sopafuglin and The Power of Now. But I don't read much. I like to talk. That's how I write. Briette keeps a diary and often allows her consciousness to stream through the typewriter, but there's no fixed regimen. It's more when it comes to me, she says, or when I have time. I usually don't write a lot. It's just a matter of jotting down emotions, 
and then when I'm in the studio, I'll read it over and find some fragments that I like. I'll discuss them with Palme, my producer, who's very good at picking out good ideas. Are you working on a new record? Hmm, yes, well, I think so, just that I don't have anything to say. What do you mean by that? You don't have anything to say. There's just no one overarching feeling, which means that there's no focus. I don't have anything to say because I'm all over the place. It's just this hodgepodge of songs. But I don't know, we'll have to wait and see. So you've got songs. No, not really, I've just been performing so much. Whenever I'm in the studio, I just fall asleep. Does the thought of following Quelia Briet strike you as overwhelming? No, more than I'd like to write in English, but transitioning is hard. Because it's hard to think in English when you've been thinking in Icelandic your whole life. My first songs were written in English, but everything is somehow a little less personal. Walking down Folkagata, struggling against the wind, I button up my coat and make that phone call that I had resolved to make. Speaking sincerely and sentimentally, I successfully coax my fiancé into joining me downtown. The evening is a whirling carousel of people and music and vivid impressions. When Briet finally takes the stage at just past 10 p.m., we stand midway up the hill on Arnarhotl, agreeing that her entrance would have been greatly improved if she had gotten her way. She had been allowed to descend from the statue of the old Viking through that impressive throng, like a vast colony of ants gathered there on the hill. The concert is enjoyable and well-received and befitting the moment, but nonetheless we imagine a far cry from her show at Harpa. As the show slowly winds down, we, not wanting to get caught in the crowd, leave for our car before the fireworks begin, and I'm left with the impression that everything would have meant so much less had I not listened to Briet's album on the bus ride to town. Engaging with some emotionally abortive podcast, I would have convinced myself that my fiancé's reluctance to join me for a concert downtown was understandable and advisable and probably more conducive to my getting work done. Life is a maze filled with dead ends and anxieties and quotidian worry, which dull the senses and distract from what's important. But there are threads lying unnoticed among its passageways, woven together by the great benefactors of mankind. Thank you for that, Ragnar. In your piece, you say uh, you've had a kind of relation to Briat since 2017. And without giving away too much, how did writing and researching this piece change your perception of her and her music? As I mentioned in the piece, I, um, I met actually Briat through her mother, Lila, who used to share an office in Leuven. And, and so I've sort of followed her career rather closely from, from the beginning. But I think the real sort of transformative experience of the article was maybe listening to the album in its entirety. So Quedia Priyat was obviously a pretty big hit in Iceland. Um, many singles that were played on the radio, and, and she was very well sort of awarded for her work on the album. But I'd never sat down and, and listened to it in its entirety before. And I don't necessarily imagine that many people have because, um, as has been pretty well documented, the, the album era of music is sort of, critics have declared that, that that era is sort of past. So just sitting there and listening to it all the way through in the moment, it moved me. I, uh, I gained so much more respect for Briet, um for doing this great concept album and also listening to her sort of take apart the process um, in the piece she discusses 
whether she, you know, I ask her whether she's planning on a new album, and she says, no, not really, because I, there's no one overarching feeling. And I, I think that sort of, that echoes many of the great artists that I love. They, you know, you hear this over and over again, like um, uh, Poe, Edgar Allan Poe had this thing about, you know, if you're writing a short story, that what you're really doing is trying to tap into a feeling and a mood, and I think that characterizes a lot of good art is that, you know, it's it's geared towards some kind of feeling and experience. So so I I don't know, yeah, that, that kind of made me love the album. Um as a as a big fan of, of music and pop music specifically and and also it, it gave me a sort of greater respect for her as a as an artist and as a musician. So yeah, I, I think that's maybe the big takeaway for me from the piece. Yeah, and with regard to this attempt to kind of capture this feeling, you know, something the piece can't quite capture is just the spectacle of it all and kind of what it's like to see her in concert, uh, this description of Meningarnot. You know, may- maybe you can just kind of briefly paint a picture of her performance. What's it like to be there? You know, I mean, also just really basically, what does her music sound like uh, for, those of us, for those of us who haven't maybe given it a listen? Right. Well, I definitely encourage the listeners to go and, and, and listen to her music, which is pop music, very well produced, and she's a, she's an excellent singer in her own right. So um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not I'm not a big fan of genres or, or trying to pigeonhole people's work into, into those compartments. But uh, the one thing for me is I, I'm not, even though I'm a big fan of music, I'm not necessarily a big fan of, like, concert going. Like, I feel that's very rarely the best way to enjoy music, and especially at a spectacle, like something like Culture Night. I mean, it's impossible to sort of take in the music fully. Uh, you know, there's so many people there. You know, you're standing too far away from the speakers. Mixing becomes a problem. So it becomes more about the performance. And, and as I say in the piece, a lot of it sort of, provides insight into the fact that she wasn't allowed to do what she wanted to do. I mean, she held this pretty awesome concert series last year at Harpan, which was sort of unanimously praised for its production level and the ambition that she put into it and the creativity. And and what you see at Culture Night and what I experienced, having spoken to her and having been there with her during soundcheck, was that, yeah, this could have been so much better if she would have just been given free reign to do what she wanted to do, which is another sort of ironic part of the piece is that, you know, she says that as she's evolved as an artist and as she's um, gained greater acclaim and respect, that she's been sort of allowed to pursue her vision more fully. But um, it's this weird tension between sort of the national broadcaster supposed to be, it's supposedly this sort of national vehicle for mediating culture. And then you've got this artist who's, you know, doing some wonderful things and you're, you're trying mm. to allow her to, you know, put on a great show, but at mm. the same time you're stymieing her in that effort. So the concert experience was um, nothing compared to sort of the, the experience of listening to the album on a bus mm. riding into town, <laughs> I guess, which is why uh, um, maybe I, I dedicate only a, a very brief portion of the article to the, to the actual experience yeah. itself. She talks about the difficulty in switching her composition um, to English. And, you know, something that I was just kind of thinking about reading your piece is, 
you know, I mean, obviously you're writing for Iceland Review, you're writing in English. Is this kind of switching something that you kind of related to uh, in her creative process? Is there something that's kind of, she kind of described it as being a little bit more closed, I I believe, uh, when she said she was trying to compose in English. Is that something that you kind of really understood uh, talking with her about? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because um, it's like we have this sort of same experience except the exact opposite experience, me and Briet. Um, I don't know if you know this. I was I was uh, a part of the Icelandic hip-hop scene for many years in Iceland, and I grew up in, in the States. So when I moved back to um, Iceland and started making music, uh, everything that I did was recorded in English. And there was this sort of feeling that you were always on the fringes of uh, the scene because you were one of the few... Uh, my band was one of the few bands in Iceland that was actually performing in English. And it always felt like you, you know, that was sort of uh, a kind of barrier towards, you know, getting any kind of recognition or radio play. I mean, all of that may be just uh, some kind of rationalization from our end, <laughs> not being good enough. <laughs> but um, but there was definitely, I could connect to that. And, you know, there was probably the idea of, well, maybe you can do this in Icelandic and maybe that would help you sort of get along or, you know, seek out bigger stages or something. But that was really never an option because um, I, I grew up thinking in English and, and writing in English. So code switching would have been very difficult for me. And uh, I understand exactly where she's going with that. I mean, there's been, uh, I, th- I think the, the best example of someone sort of struggling with, with Bariyad is putting a finger on this Auschwitz-Triste, whose music is absolutely wonderful and the lyricism in Icelandic is excellent because his father, uh, who's a poet, writes many of his lyrics, uh, so does his collaborator, Julius. But then, you know, he he sort of gets signed, gets a record deal, and as I understand, you know, there's this push towards translating his music to try to reach a bigger audience. But something gets lost in translation where it's, it just doesn't come across the same way. Yeah, it, it just doesn't work as well. So, I mean, when when she said that, I, I thought of Auschwitz and my own experiences. But, I mean, it's it's very, I mean, I thought it was pretty earnest of her and sincere to say, you know, listen, this is this is probably good for business. But, you know, it, I, I can just feel it when I'm writing it. it. It doesn't sound as personal. I don't have maybe the, the mastery of the language, the command of it necessary which is i think pretty perceptive well thank you raknar and uh you can read raknar's piece in issue four of iceland review deep north is the official podcast of iceland review iceland's longest running english language magazine focusing on nature politics and community check it out wherever you listen to podcasts